Story Collective. Untold stories by unheard voices. Keystrokes Per Minute, a limited series podcast about the women of the New Zealand Public Service Typing Pools from 1945 till the present day. Heidi Mai, welcome to Episode 4, Life in the Typing Pool, Part 2. In this episode, we hear stories about the day-to-day operations of the typing pool, the physical layout, how the work was submitted, normally via a supervisor or head typist, how it was then distributed to the typists, whose job it was to ensure quality, and how documents were returned to the initiator. We also learn that there were tricks of the trade, or what we might call today a hack, for how to manage the dilemma of correcting mistakes and wrangling troublesome technology like carbon paper or stencils for the gestetner an early photocopier that was, by all accounts, quite a messy affair. A note about technology. Most of the interviewees in this episode will talk about the kind of typewriter that they were using during their era. We will cover the evolution and impact of typewriter technology and the introduction of computers in a separate episode later in the series. However, the general trajectory was that typists used manual typewriters into the late 1960s, then electronic or electric typewriters start to appear and were in use until the late 1980s, when word processors are then introduced and eventually by the mid-1990s there are very few typewriters still in use. The electronic golf ball typewriter signalled a major shift in speed and flexibility, as the separate key strikers were replaced with a spinning ball of metal which was interchangeable, so that typists could now use symbols like macrons over individual letters, or construct complex mathematical equations. Listeners can see examples of different typewriters on the Story Collective website or Story Collective NZ Instagram. Also peppered throughout this episode, interviewees regale us with the humorous anecdotes about the characters found inside and outside the typing room. And we end the episode with something a bit different, an in-studio interview with New Zealand writer and poet Maggie Rainey-Smith. During Mary Dooley's career, she progressed through the ranks of senior shorthand typist, head typist, and eventually the manager of typing services. In this clip, she talks to Lorraine Melvin about some of the typing pools she has managed, the number of staff, the different roles within the typing pool, and the enormous variety of work undertaken. This period spans from the 1950s to the mid-1970s. So the position where you were head typist, were you the supervisor? Did you look up? So you were in a supervisory position, yes, for six years. Organising the work and allocating the jobs to the various people in the typing pool. You know the way the the system worked was: if you, if the person uh, was new, they had to be everything had to be shown to them how to do things. And I, you know, always made sure that I used to say to them, "Look, when you were at school, if you got marked out of a hundred and you got fifty, you got a pass. Here, it's got to be a hundred all the time." (laughs) <laughs> I was very strict. <laughs> I didn't want to send out anything with bad spelling or grammar or whatever. It was very important. Yes. That was a graded role? Yes, it so was graded. Was the beginning of you well, I, a senior typist, senior shorthand typist was the first grade I got above basic grade. You could not be appointed to that grade, a senior shorthand typist, unless you had your senior exam. But the year after I got my senior exam, they changed the rules and you could go up by experience. But I was going to say that in social welfare, we had a, you know, it was a staff of 11 
and so that was over the that was how it was run Grade High and District Health, and the Labor Department had a staff of twenty two, and that was a, a you know much bigger. Also had a lot of process work. We handled the State Services Appeal Board, and uh, we handled you know all sorts of um, immigration um, applications and. Uh, a huge amount. There was absolute, piles and piles of files would come in day in, day out, so much so that they'd never fit on the table that you had to take the work off. You had to stack them on the floor as well and then work your way through. It was like drowning in so paper. So you again supervising in that position? Yes. So you were responsible was, for the was, stacks going... Yeah, and down. being placed and also the allocation of the various jobs that had to be done and uh, how big was that? I mean that's a big room to hold all those well they weren't all in the same room uh, most of them were it was like a factory so were they all in desks? rows yes like in like the main typing pool I suppose it would have had about 14 or 15 people in it then there was the accounts clerk working on accounts section and then there was there were positions like the arbitration court, the compensation court, they had positions and they were related to Labor Department. You see, that they all came under Labor Department. And if those people left or needed replacement or whatever, you had to find a person to do that job. So you were interviewing people oh, yes. for the job? Yes, and well, and, but as well as that, you like in conjunction with in Labor Department, it was in conjunction with the administration office uh, and that sort of thing. But you would find the right person who could do it, and then take it to the admin officer and say, uh, you know. So would these people come from internal, or you no? They come in come from, from outside, outside, and often they'd come as from being judges' associates or something like that. Right. There were three main typing pools in the Labor Department. Main, there was one main typing pool and there was these satellite offices which we talked about and the work was very, very and we covered unemployment, factory inspectorate, immigration division, research and the Council for Women and uh, the training within the industry, the legal division and there was a lot of work to do with the diplomatic bag, you know, for immigration applications to come to New Zealand and for visas and stuff like that. And the appeal board, I think, we mentioned that. Okay. This was 19, 1964, May 64 to May 75. I worked in Labor Department. That was 11 years. Many interviewees told us about having a desk file or formatting guidelines that they used to ensure they followed the correct way to set out letters and documents. In this clip, Lorraine tells us about the Rules for Typists, which was created by her boss, the head typist at the Ministry of Education, which ran to 50 pages or more of instructions about document formats and the correct ways to address parliamentarians, etc. Then Lorraine explains the difficulties of dealing with a ministerial, one of the more important tasks in a government typing pool, and in which she covers some of the tricks of the trade and how to cover up mistakes. Boss put out this marvellous book, uh, Rules for Typists, and the men loved it so much they kept coming to her and asking for um, copies of it. it. It told you everything. It told you how to address mayors. It told you um, how to spell certain words that people sort of got muddled up with. I remember mileage. 
She spelt it. We had to spell it as M I L A G E. Oh, that's controversial. Without the E, and the newspapers picked up on the book somehow, and they said at the education department they're told they've got to do millage instead of mileage. <laughs> so, what, do you remember what year that was? Oh, every solitary year she put it out. Really? And I, I followed with it when when I got to be her job. It, it, it was how to address parliamentarians when you're writing to them, everything. Really? Who, who actually was in parliament, who was in the opposition. It had everything in this book a that really, she came really up with. A full manual. Yeah, yeah. As I said, all the men wanted it as well. They all came and asked for their copy, please. And it took us a long time because we had to um, collate it as well. The junior typers always got to collate it. We stood in the corridor at government buildings and put all the papers on a long cabinet and and then we had to collate collate our books one page there would be about 50 pages in it and we'd we'd make about 100 books yeah junior's always got the collating job and how were they bound how were they just were they a4 big yeah a4 big big staples i think yeah with covers yeah she put pink covers on them I can't remember what they're called. Yeah. Typist book, typist manual, I can't remember. Yes, something Edu- like that, Education though. department. Education department, yes. And, and then when they changed it, of course, they changed all... It used to be yours sincerely and everything on the right-hand side. Mm-hmm. Dear so-and-so, yours sincerely. Then they changed everything to the left-hand side because it would. they get, They did a survey in England where they guarantee it saved something like 10% of the typist's time. So all everything a time was on the motion study on how to lay out your letter. Yeah, so everything, everything was put on the left hand side. And yes. on the very first day we moved over, this man came charging to the room. Who's the left handed typist? <laughs> and the ministerials, of course, you weren't allowed to rub out. We oh. were not allowed to rub out at all on a ministerial. And we must uh, Tell me about that. Just talk about a ministerial. It's not either way we know it, what it it's is. It's a letter that comes across from the minister's office that somebody's written for the minister. Yes. And he's going to sign it. And, and we have to type it out. And um, if it was to his constituent, it had to be done instantly. You had to drop everything. But if it was just an ordinary one, that it could take the urgent, normal, mm-hmm. you know, urgent mm-hmm. pile. And, um, you, but you were not allowed to make a mistake, not one mistake. And I don't know how many times typists would go, <coughs> and pull it and throw it in the rubbish bin and start again and start again. And, of course, if the men decided to change one word, you had to go through it all again, and they got in a temper because they'd changed... The to two, but you had to do it again, and then you make 30 more mistakes, do it again and again and again. Oh, the stress of that. Yeah, but later on, I became the greatest person in the pool for rubbing out with anyone knowing. <laughs> so, on ministerials. <laughs> I don't know, I was just brilliant at it. It wasn't twink. No, it wasn't twink, it was a rub out. You have to put an envelope behind, in between the carbon and the, and the, and the, the, the white paper, and then rub. And then you put the envelope behind the next piece of code. So it was one plus nine or something. And you had to keep moving the envelope behind each carbon paper so that you could rub out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What else? What other sorts of tricks of the trade like Oh, that? well, every Friday our boss made us clean the machines, you see. Really? So you have to pick out the dirt that was in the E's or the A's or whatever. And you had to clean the carriage. So you had to pick them out, literally pick them yeah, out. Yeah, well, you, you got a paper clip and yes. broke it in half sort yes. of thing, and then you picked out the, oh, or the dirt that was that. in the yes. E or the A. or the, Because the ink sort of filled up yeah, the spaces. Yeah, with the ribbon. A or something like yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. You see, what you did in, in the... Um, on the far In the crest, in the crest, you yes. put your initials on stencil. Right. So that your initials went all the way through. So they knew which typist it was, so they could take it back to the typist. Really? Yeah, and you did that in ordinary letters as well. You put your initials through the crest. Just a note for listeners. 
Many of the interviewees mention the use of carbon copies. This relates to the copying mechanism of the era. Carbon paper was sandwiched between the sheet of letterhead at the front and the coloured piece of plain paper at the back. This enabled the letterhead to be sent to the recipient and a copy to be placed into a file. Often there was a need for multiple copies, just the way Lorraine described in her clip that ministerials required one letterhead and nine copies, or one plus nine. One of the main functions of the births, deaths and marriages department was issuing birth certificates, which required a bit of investigative work from staff. In this clip, Minna talks about the different registers that existed in the 70s and describes some of the characters inside and alongside the typing pool. Um, so I did all the shorthand in that because they, that group of people um, would get, when they got the certificates, there was a lot of advisors in there who would deal with the tricky um, questions that people would write their letters in. So the typing pool had basically cyclostyled, um, we had a gestetna, which we, um, they were all sort of standard forms for someone that said, yes, we've got your certificate, here it is. No, we haven't got your certificate, we need this, more information or whatever. In the other room, so the year that I was there, uh, Māori had been given, um, Māori births didn't have to be registered until about 19, I think it was about 1916. So when I started there in 1976, a lot of Māori people were writing in to get their birth certificate so they could get their super. And so often, very often, their births were not registered because they're in the middle of nowhere. They had to go, they weren't going to traipse all the way to a post office or whatever to register it. They just did it. So... There was at that stage there was um, always a lot of a uh, lot of shorthand to keep me busy, um, and so they also the other thing they had was they had uh, registers, they had Māori registers and um, and everybody else. So for example, I've got twin brothers. I've got one brother registered on the Māori um, register and the other one on the non on on the general one. So you had to Mr. Wolf. Wolf, part of his job was to, um, when they filled, people filled out a form, they highlighted names and could get letters with about four or five names on it. And you never knew which, quite often you'd get a, a certificate and it wasn't in any of them. So um, it was like trying to sort of sort of puzzle out. Yeah, yeah we socialised sort of within, like we didn't go home to each other's homes and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, we'd go out together, but I think... So it was like a big family. Um, the other thing too was it was at the time of Carmen. So um, we were in a little room, but there was this big area outside our door where customers would come to a counter. They would ask for their, they'd fill out their form for the irrelevant certificates that they wanted. And there were two young guys there. Now one of them was this Robert, who was a Pākehā boy, he would kick up his pants. And the other one was a Samoan guy um, who was Miss Augustine, the fire dancer at Carmen's at night, but was just August during the day. And of course, Robert used to give August hard time. And August could come running into the typing pool, hide behind the door and cry because Robert was, you know, picking on him. So Olga would go out, <laughs> sort Robert out. We'd all be standing and listening. Sort him out and tell him to, you know, pull his head in. <laughs> then she'd come in and we'd sort it. 
And then the other thing that was, there was another group which was behind this great big vaulted door. It was a big area where all the books, all the birth, deaths and marriage certificates were held. They were in these great big books. It was a big area. There were two typists in there and they typed the certificates. And one was a lady from Hong Kong, Grace, um, who in her own self was very entertaining. And I never ever remember who the second person because it was always about Grace. And we used to have Mr. Wolf. I was very naughty. I used to always go up and say, What's the time, Mr. Wolf? <laughs> and go, 2.30, thank you. I tootled back to my typing pool. I was such a kid. We just had a lot of fun. Working for only a short spell in the police HQ typing pool, Beverly was not impressed with the volume of urgent work. However, she did seem to enjoy the unique position of being sent out to supervise police officers taking their typing exams. A message for listeners. Beverly has unfortunately died since the recording of her interview in 2018, so the research team is really glad to have captured her work history and voice for this podcast and as part of the materials submitted to the National Library Archive. So late 69, you went to Wellington? Yeah, to 75. To 75. Okay, did you go to a job or did you go and then find a job? No, I went there and found a job at police headquarters. That's when I found the one at police headquarters in the typing pool. Where was police headquarters then? Brandon Street. Brandon Street, okay. Well, I was going to go as a receptionist Mm -hmm. up on one of the top floors where... um, the commissioner and that was, but yeah. they said they will put you in the typing pool at the moment just to get a feel of the place. Yeah, okay. But I never yeah. ever got upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> you never ever got there. Well, anyway, I, I lasted till July mm-hmm. the next year. Mm-hmm. I lasted mm-hmm. then. I thought I've had enough of this, all this, all this work here and everything's urgent. And we had three baskets of work. Mm. And everything, like I said, you had to take from the bottom of the pile mm-hmm. and you didn't know what it was going to be and it could be 20 pages of dog training. Oh, glory. And then you had to, when you finished that, you had to go to the bottom again and find another 20 pages or something. It was, ro- oh, gosh, it was really, it was the worst job. I kept saying it's the really? worst job I've ever had. Really? Mm. And that was in a room of how many typists would be? There in? was well, roughly, from memory, about four over on that side, three over this side, okay. and then we had the supervisor in the corner. Mm-hmm. So just mm-hmm. one supervisor. Yeah, one. Supervisor. And what did the supervisor do? Did the work come to? Was it a woman? Yeah. So the work came yeah. to the supervisor, and she put it in these baskets. Yeah, or the, the, the men dropped them themselves. The they men just put them. it on the top, and okay. of course it would gradually go to the bottom. Yes, yeah. Yes, but she just sort of supervised. Mm. And what sort of machines did you have, Bev? Um, just ty- ordinary type Ordinary writers. manual type yeah, writers, not manu- electric. No, not at that stage. No, no we didn't. We just had um, manual. Yeah. Mm. And I was made to go out and supervise the typing exam to the police because the police all had to use typewriters. Of course. And I, the lady, the supervising lady there said, one of you always have to go out. And it was me, I suppose, because I was the eldest. I was the eldest because, you know, I was late yes, 20s yes. at this stage. And I had to go out and supervise the typing exams. Well, within the first five minutes, one of the typewriters backed up. <laughs> oh, God, it was terrible. 
It was terrible. But anyway, we got there. We got there. And uh, I used to go to the dances. And um, um, one of the men came and asked me for a dance. He said, I remember you from my typing pool <laughs> when you supervised us out there at the Trentham. I said, oh. of course. Were they any good? Oh, they were good. Were they, they were good. Yeah. yeah. And they did but it they in were... the... One, one finger. finger, mostly one yeah. finger, and we did it in the time allocated, oh, yes, even okay. with the broken down typewriter. <laughs> Yvonne secured a job through a recruitment firm in the Department of Statistics typing pool. Her new role utilised her dictaphone typing skills, which was gaining popularity over shorthand dictation by the late 1970s. Here, Yvonne gives us a great recollection of how the typing pool work was organised. Um, like recruitment agency that they had back then and she said well there's a job going at the department of statistics working at the typing pool and I went okay what does that mean <laughs> you just sit there typing all day and I'm going oh, I can do that I can type all day so I'm a pretty good typist so I think we had to go do the typing test and and like 50 words a minute, I could do 50 words a minute, and they said there would be some um, audio typing because people were now starting to use the little tapes, and so there would be some of that work to do, and nobody else had done that in the typing pool, so I'd probably be one of the first people. Yeah. But I was the junior, I was the baby, because um, I think I was still like 17. Yeah. Um, and so I joined the typing pool. So statistics was then in Molesworth Streets, right opposite the, um, what is now New World, but used to be the brewery. <laughs> and we were on the 12th floor, I remember that, because we set up where the general manager sat, or the whoever the CEO of statistics was, but we sat up there. And so we were like, wow, we're on the 12th floor. This is pretty cool. Well, that's what I thought. It was pretty cool. We had the corner office, so we had great views of the brewery across the road and all the boys that worked there. Uh, remember looking down at them at lunchtime <laughs> and there were like there was the head typist who sat on a plinth literally on a plinth mm -hmm. um, there was the senior typist or the assistant head typist um, so she, I don't think she sat on a plinth and then there were like senior typist and there was the telex operator who sat in the corner with her telex machine Banging away, yep. So that was interesting. Um, and I think there was me and another girl who was probably a little bit older than me. She was probably in her 20s. So how many all together in the pool? So I'm looking around the room. So I was by the door and there was one, two, three, four, five, six. Probably about six of us. Including your senior type, yeah, your, your head yeah, typist. Yeah, so I don't think we were a big typing no. pool in the whole scheme of things. But yeah, that, and literally... The door would open and the work would come in. So how did it come in? Um, a boy. <laughs> I remember a young man would come in and, and take the work into the head typist and then she would divvy it up depending on your expertise and, and what you could actually do. So whether it was just a plain letter or whether it was doing, because it was statistics, so it was doing statistical tables. So that was a bit of work to actually do that. Um, so she would divvy up the work and then you had to give the work back to her to check until she thought you were okay um, to then let the work go and then you would have like an in-tray and an out-tray and then she'd, the, they would collect the work 
and then the young man would come and get it and take it back to whichever department um, needed the work or whoever deposit work. So there were little slips on it, so I would say this was typed by Yvonne or typist number two, I can't remember if we had names, we must have had names, so I would know it was me. Um, and so, and that was our day, I think we started like probably 8.30 in the morning and worked till probably about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening and just typed. What sort of equipment were you using by then? So electric typewriters. And I think we even had like what's called the golf ball with the round, swung around, the golf ball one. Yep. So I think we had those. And we must have had a couple of different different typewriters, but I think mine was a golf ball. Working as a staff typist for the Housing Corporation in the 1980s, Alison was rotated around the different sections and found that she really enjoyed working with the lawyers. In this era, dictation was recorded onto small tapes, which the typist then used a desktop machine, a headset and foot pedals to listen back to and transcribe into written documents. There there was the manager, there was a senior typist and there were three staff typists. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the three staff typists and... um, Presumably you were the only junior, or you were one of the... Um, I, I was the only... Yeah, I was the only junior. The yes. other two staff typists had been there a number of years. So I was the... Yeah, I was certainly the baby. Yeah. <laughs> I was certainly the baby. Um, but the manager, she did shorthand, um, which is why I think she liked me, because I did shorthand, yes. and she could see sort of her and me mm. and... And that's why she wanted to employ me. So because it was quite special to have shorthand. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I kind of felt like I got opportunities in the team that the others didn't get yeah. because they didn't do the shorthand, and I got to go so to you meetings. Would go and meet. How, how? Tell me how the work was actually allocated. So we had there were different sections in housing corporation at the time. There was rentals, there was loans, there was legal, and you weren't allowed to do legal until you'd been there for quite some time and you got quite proficient. But I got to do legal quite quickly, as I recall. You had to be really accurate to do the legal work for the solicitors. And so they had all these different sections, and and we rotated every week. So one week you'd be doing loans, and the next week you'd be doing rentals. And then if you did legal, you'd do a week on legal. Um, and so we did lots of dictation work. Got the little, not like these flash machines now, but we got the little tapes were in a box, and you had to go and get a... A tape and put it into the machine on your desk and, and type up and all the letters. It was electric. It was one of the I think it was one of the ones with the ball. Was it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So an IBM or something like that. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I know we got we got new ones a couple of times in the time I was there, but same tech, the same type of technology. same type of technology, yes, just okay. the newer yes, version. version. Mm, yes. Mm. And then we had the dictation machine on our desk as well with the little tapes to do the dictation did work. Did you like that? I did, actually. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah. And the headset, and you had to sit there and sit away. And then you go and deliver your work once it had been typed, and so you got out around the building. And and who did the quality checking for, the, for, the, for your work? Did the senior typist or the supervising typist, did anybody check your work? Not that I recall. No. Yes, absolutely. I don't recall anybody checking it, no. 
And you were, what, 16, 17? I was 17. 17. 17. Yeah, I was 18 at the end of that first year. Because all those documents would be really important. Mm. Oh, loan documents for loans for people yeah. buying houses and yeah. property law act notices and all those kind of... You know, it was before tenancy services ever existed, mm. so, you know, this department... Yeah wasn't there then, so we did property law act notices and legal documents. I loved the legal work. Did you? Yes, why was that? Oh, it was just, I've always loved the legal aspect of things, and I think just the, because it was so important and it had to be right, and it was interesting, it wasn't just a letter to somebody telling them they were behind with the rent, or it was just interesting. I I really enjoyed it. And you knew it was going to have to hold up possibly in court or something one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the, we had two lawyers at the or solicitors they were called at the time, a lady, Margaret Bird, and Roger Donnellan, the man. And um, he was at the time he was a real scary type person, but I got to know him over the years, and he was actually really lovely. And the first time I did work for him, he wrote me this lovely quote, which I've still got about oh, about what I'd done. So it was lovely. Yeah. When Maureen joined the Air Force in 1960 as a shorthand typist, she was still required to do basic training in Dunedin before being posted to a typing pool. She then went on to undertake sole charge typist roles in different parts of the base and in different parts of the country. Okay, so you joined the Air Force. Where were you put when you went into the Air Force? Oh, we had to go and do a six-week, was it? six-week recruit course down in Tyree, out of Dunedin, um, and I loved it. And we all seemed to meet on the train in Hamilton because there was a lot coming down from Wellington. We had to go down by train, then cross over on the boat. That was probably the worst day in the year that you could go across that strait. Um, and then down by train down to Dunedin, and we got off the train, and it was snowing, and we'd never seen snow. And we were standing there like dorks, running around in the snow, and then all of a sudden you heard this bellow from the sergeant. It was a lot of learning we did in those first six weeks. And then after the six weeks, we got posted to different Air Force bases around the country, and I got Fenuapai, which turned out when we realised later on that the closest to your home was the closest space you went to from a recruit course. So when it came to your work, where did you get put with that shorthand and that typing? Um, For the first the first job that I had after recruit course was in headquarters. Um, I can't remember how long I was in headquarters on base for. No, I've got no idea how long that was. But then it got to the stage that they started to shift me around and I had really interesting jobs, like up at the command and staff college, and that was where they trained um, people that they had chosen to become officers. Um, I worked in the hangar. Oh, I don't know. I must have worked in the hangar for about four years. Um, loved it out there. 
And it was interesting, our officers were at the back of the hangar or along the side of the hangar. But every time I walked out into the hangar, the boss had told the guys out there that if I was going out into the hangar and the first person to notice me, they were to let everyone else know that I was in the hangar so there was no swearing or anything going on, which I was quite impressed with at the time. And can you remember anything much about the type of work that you were doing? In those initial days, when I was in the typing pool, um, it was mainly just letters mm -hmm. oh, and the payroll once a fortnight. But when you shifted down to the hangar, I just did everything that was required down there, plus a few extras for some of the guys that they private stuff and that you weren't allowed to do and, you know, that sort of thing. They knew it went on, of course. Well, the officers had all been below office, yes. officer level at some point. Yes. <laughs> I probably spent 18 months in, in the typing pool. I joined the Air Force as a leading aircraft woman, and usually you would join the Air Force as an aircraft woman. But if you were a shorthand typist, you, were, you went in as a leading aircraft woman. Then I got my corporal stripes, just the two stripes. Um, where did I go from there? Oh, then I got a posting to Wellington. And I hated it. Oh. <laughs> and in all those roles, you were doing shorthand typing? Mostly typing. I more or less dropped shorthand in the end because no one was using it. But you had to have it to get the leading... Yes, yes, yes. leading aircraft woman. Yeah. Um, you had to have that qualification to move, <laughs> you know, to get in, really, for me as a shorthand yeah. typist. Um, but that also meant that, you know, we moved up the ranks quicker because we had shorthand typing. I think on my second posting to Wellington, I think I was probably a sergeant then. Valerie started her typist career for state insurance in Invercargill in 1952. Gaining her senior government exams at night school then proved to be a good decision when she returned to the workforce in 1976, after a long break to raise her family. During her interview with the DSIR, Valerie requested family-friendly hours, asking to finish the day earlier so she could collect her children from school. So I tried for a job in Lincoln at the DSIR, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. My children, the ones going to high school, were going to Lincoln High School, and I thought we could go together. So when I went for the job interview, I said to them, yes, I would like the job, but I want to finish an hour early so I can pick up my children from school. So they listened to me very politely, but it seemed to throw them into a bit of a quandary, and I guess head office was involved and all that sort of thing. But um, I did get the job. And I was always quite amused because the head typist, who was a wee bit of a dragon, said she didn't give a stuff for my latest qualifications. She said, you got the job because you had senior government. And senior government covered English. 
And she said, so many modern young women have very poor English. And so that is why I got the job through my old senior government certificate. And they did let me finish at 3.30. And then I drove round to the school. I brought my children to school. And then I went round to the school and brought them home, the 15-mile trip. And I brought other local children home as well. So that was quite good. Now, this was the job with the most interesting content of any job I had. I really, really enjoyed the content of that job. We did a lot for the botany division, and that was a Mr. Godley, and then also a lot for the crop research. But also, they were doing a lot of um, investigation into bumblebees. So, we, you know, we had a lot to do with bumblebees and plants and the handwriting was a problem. We were doing it from handwriting, a lot of scientific words, of course. But I seemed to manage that very well, uh, as well as any of us did. You were not using your shorthand very much no, there? Not at all. Not at not all. At all. Yeah. There wasn't any shorthand used at all. The head typist, she did quite a lot of dictaphone work. But I think she was the only one that did it. I can't remember doing it there, although I did later on in other jobs. There were five of us once again. It was a pool of about five. And she ran it with a fairly iron hand, distributed the work. But, of course, the work they did would be very long research papers. And then, of course, they seemed to go off to jo jo you know, Joe Bloggs and Tom and Dick and Harry, all seemed to look through them and alter them. And then, of course, they would come back and there would be whole pages taken out and there'd be whole pages put in. And when they were 30, 40 pages long, we used to try and sort of cobble it together so we didn't have to do the whole darn thing again. So sometimes you'd end up with some short pages and some long pages and, and that sort of thing. But I did enjoy there and, you know, there were funny little things. They'd get us to um, taste the new varieties of potatoes. Uh, random tests so if we were agreeable we'd all go over to sort of a laboratory and they'd have all these slices of cooked potatoes for us and we'd taste them and give our opinion and that sort of thing. Rosemary graduated her Nelson Polytech secretarial course with no intention of working in a typing pool. However, before making a move to Wellington in 1976, she found herself a shorthand typist job with the post office and a place in the GPO boarding house. I remember being interviewed by the Nelson Evening Mail. There was a few of us in the class who got interviewed about what we wanted to do when we left uh, Polytech. And I said, oh, I don't want to work in a typing pool. I think I'd like to work in an office, I thought. Um, after graduation, one of the girl that I roomed with, boarded with in Nelson, she got a job in Wellington at post office headquarters. And she said to me, oh, why don't you come up and work there too? They're always looking for typists. I thought about it and I thought, yes, I will. And so I applied for a job at post office headquarters and got it. And of course you would. You'd come top of your yeah. class and you'd grade. And I started work there on the 2nd of February 1976. I think at a salary of... 2828 per year. <laughs> no. Yes. I boarded, I suppose, in the post office boarding house in Thornburn, 33 Hobson Street. I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Within walking distance. Absolutely. Yes. 
I have to say I didn't really enjoy that experience. I've never had to look after myself before. Mum had always done mm. it. So when I started work, I remember I had two skirts, two tops. This was in summer, and one pair of shoes. So I really had to buy all my own clothes. And they inducted us, I suppose. And we had a desk file, which set out how you set out your letters. So your style book, was it like a style book? Yes, it was like a style book. And I can remember sitting down that first day thinking, I'm never going to remember all this, how many spaces to put between the dress and the date. and, And... there was no flexibility, so you had to do your letters in that format. And everything we typed had to go to the senior typist for checking before it okay. went on its way to wherever it was going. And you had carbon copies? Oh, carbon copies, yes. Mm-hmm. Lots of carbon, three, usually three. And if you did make an error of some sort, were you able to correct it? Or did you have to do the letter again, or whatever it was? It depends on what it was. Okay. If it were ministerial letters, because mm-hmm. we did do a lot of letters, ministerials, they had to be perfect. Yeah. So if we made a mistake, we had to start again. And they were on a thicker quality oh, paper. Really? Yes. Um, we, we did three types of things. We did letters, we did memos, which were more internal, and minutes, which were within the floor. And they were all carbon copied. Um, the letters and the memos, if you made a mistake, you rubbed it out with your little rubber and the carbon copy, and just, yeah, it was and the more you tried not to make a mistake, especially with the ministerials, the more you made, yes. Still, still smoking, you know, smoking was still... Um, acceptable back then, and I can remember one of the staff members coming to me one day and saying, um, excuse me, Rose, but the rubbish bin's on fire. <laughs> she used to put all her cigarette butts in an envelope, seal it up and put it in her bin. And would be still hot. Yes, and one day it, it actually did burn. So we put the fire out and there was no damage. It, metal bins in those days, of course. Oh, yes. yes. Jill obtained a lot of qualifications during her 50-year career, achieving advanced-level public service or government exams, trade certification board and chamber of commerce. She even reset the senior and advanced Pitman certificates, being awarded top in New Zealand for shorthand. The value of these skills is still in service today. In this clip, Jill tells Eth about how she has been able to provide this expertise in her current role as a medical typist. And can you remember how you got to know how to set things out? Did they have a, an example for you to follow? So I think you... because from school, because we'd done public service exams at school, we knew how to, what the spacing should be. And I, when I came to work at the hospital four years ago, a lot of people hadn't been professionally trained as typists. So they were all doing different Set outs, and so I'd be, they'd be getting me to do their work for them, and I'd be saying, "No, you're setting these things out," because I was quite a pain in the backside for them all. And we ended up having a big meeting and deciding on my recommendations what our spacing should be. 
and it was back to the government's basings. Can you remember generally how many carbon copies you had to do? <laughs> you all I re- do that. <laughs> I remember the little pieces of paper you had to slot between the carbons, like three or four. And I remember the stencils where you had to paint the errors with that little pink nail polishy yes. stuff. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. And when you made a mistake, did you generally oh. have to start again or did you manage ge- sometimes generally, to Generally, I got pretty good at correcting. <laughs> I wasn't the best typist in the world. Yeah, so, um, yeah, lots of corrections. I was telling my husband today that one of the girls that worked with me, we collected all our our rubber from the rubbers and put it in an envelope called it our rubber dust factory. (laughs) By the mid-1980s, when Sarah started her first job as a shorthand typist, induction programs assisted new staff to get up to speed quickly. The technology of this era created a fast-paced environment, diversifying the tasks of typists, who were now being asked to operate mainframe computers, keying in data quickly and accurately. I can't really remember, but then I got the DSW interview, um, and that was to work mm-hmm. in the typing pool as a junior typist at the Manukau DSW office. So I started and got trained up, and they were quite good. Like you had your trainers, they were senior typists, but they were like the teachers, really. They, you'd take your letter up and they'd critique it, and you go back and fix it up. So you taught how to how to lay out the letters in terms of what DSW did, and like so we learned that. Um, you know, I was young, learned things quite quickly. Thought I was pretty good. And, um, and what was the pool like? Was it a big room? Was yep, of- it was a massive room. So what we had in there, we had a room. Now, there were probably, if I think back, about 10 or 15 of us, um, where all the typewriters were. Then at the back, there was a word processor. That was really interesting. Ah, yeah. yeah, so we had, it was called Wang. So that would be 1986-87. And then we also had a big uh, computer room, and that's where we did tally text and all the processing of payments, and then we actually did that manually. Mm-hmm. So um, I was employed as a junior typist who also was required to do short, take shorthand dictation. So did that, and like it was quite interesting because you get there in the morning, all these people are rung up saying, yeah, I need dictation. You go down to the floor with your little notepad and take all that, and then come back and transcribe it all. Yeah, it was Pittman's, yeah. yeah. I didn't do the, um, but what, there was the other ones. Tea, whatever, so, yeah, so there was a few of us that did shorthand um, at the typing pool. Did you get more money for that? No, no. no. So you, we came in as juniors, yeah. so a junior typist, and you go through the ranks. And I was sort of proud of myself because in 18 months I became a senior typist. Yeah, yeah, 18 months later, so that was quite cool. I thought, oh, yeah, this is all right. And there was probably about five or six of us as seniors. Yeah, so... Um, so you, by this time, you'd been going on for 18 or something? Yeah, yeah. It's quite young, yeah. Whilst the majority of the Keystrokes interviews were recorded as in-person oral interviews, most often in the participants' home or workplace, the research team also invited participants to submit a written self-interview based on a set of similar questions. In this next clip, we flip that process and interview in person, in the studio, one participant who wrote their story down for us. Maggie Rainey-Smith is a novelist, poet, short story writer, essayist and book reviewer. Her latest novel, Daughters of Messini, is about immigration and the Greek Civil War. In her working life, she teaches workplace English to migrants and refugees. Maggie's working life, however, started as a shorthand typist at the Nelson Chief Post Office. Many of Maggie's mother's siblings worked for the post office, 
and it was a beloved aunt who was also a shorthand typist who set her on that path. Welcome Maggie to the Keystrokes Per Minute podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here and talk about your experiences and those of your contemporaries. Thank you Megan, it's a pleasure to be invited. I was really interested when a friend who I was in the typing pool with and who I was at the post office hostel, Barclay House in the gosh, the 60s, uh, contacted me and said, look, this is this should be fun. And yeah, it's lovely. It's been lovely looking back and thinking about those days. You give us a quick rundown. You were born and raised in, in Richmond. In Richmond, Nelson, which is my mother's hometown. And my p- mother was a, a working class Irish Catholic family or Scottish Irish Catholic family. Um, she left school age 12. So her younger sister was the lucky last sibling who was given an education so she went to the Catholic the convent and was educated by the nuns and became a shorthand typist and she remained unmarried and so therefore had a a good income her own car and was kind of the envy of our family we didn't have a car and so she was kind of something to aspire to beautiful clothes (laughs) a life and um yeah as as a, a young person I didn't have great aspirations but I kind of knew I wanted to be a reporter was what I thought and I knew you needed shorthand. Um, do you remember the interview how you got into your first job? That, that's a really interesting question because I don't but I suspect I know I left school at 16 and I went briefly to the Nelson Polytech to get my shorthand speed up and I know that my aunt was the supervising shorthand typist for the engineer's office in Nelson, and I ended up with a job in the clerical side. Now, this was one of my favourite parts of your interview. <laughs> What's that? Um, so I'm just going to give the whole paragraph. Oh dear. Okay, another of my enduring memories is cleaning my typewriter on a Friday afternoon. It was quite an event. I think we typed on an Imperial 66. But I also recall the brand Remington, so I can't be certain. But I do recall is the small zipper bag with all the brushes and various cloths needed for cleaning the typewriter. We would go so far as to remove the platen, and for um, listeners that's the roller, if you like, the uh, black roller at the back of the machine that turns the paper, and um, clean it with white spirits. I kept in touch with my first supervising shorthand typist, And in recent years, we had a laugh about my ability to disassemble my typewriter for cleaning and ending up with spare parts um, belonging to the typewriter that I didn't know where to put back. (laughs) So a small pile of extra bits accumulated on my desk. Meanwhile, thankfully, the typewriter kept functioning. This is true, and it sounds ridiculous, but I don't quite know how I managed it. It was kind of a joke, yeah. Did anyone else have little small piles of spare parts? No, I don't think so. I think I was the one who had the most carbon up there, white blouse, and the person who could... Who could dismantle a typewriter and put it back together without place replacing every piece? <laughs> I recall uh, Mrs. Downs, who came to be our supervising shorthand typist in the typing pool in Wellington, who was a huge influence on my life. And she arrived and got the job, as often happened in those situations. She wasn't expected. Someone else was in the pool was, and she came from another branch. And at the time, it's she, I think she was 60, and we were all appalled. She was so old, which makes me chuckle now. But she was an absolute honey of a woman, and for some reason, she saw my potential, <laughs> and she kind of fostered my... Um, she actually had me promoted to 
POHQ and I ended up in personnel as a senior shorthand typist and that was really uncomfortable because I wasn't expected to get that job. But she also encouraged me to travel. So I will look back on that time more uh, just about meeting a person who believes in you. Um, she knew we'd had some uh, bereavement in our family and I was away from home. She kind of just took me under her wing and she was, she was just kind of devoted to the whole typing pool. We did have a lovely social life because we were a hostel and I think it was in the era like the nursing hostels. So on Saturday night, anyone who was having a party and wanted girls would phone the hostel. It was kind of, and it sounds a little bit dodgy, but we would just all jump in a taxi. Someone would call and say, we're having a party at such and such address, and we'd go in a group. So I suppose that was the safety, and I don't ever recall anything dodgy. We would just go to parties. They were, there was always a call on Saturday night. A party was happening in Wellington. But also we went to the Sheridan, we went to the Downtown Club, we went to the Majestic Cabaret. Um, the cavern, there were, you know, it was, and we walked everywhere because we were in Oriental Bay. So uh, we'd get a taxi to a party if it was in like one of the suburbs, like Hatai or something. We didn't, couldn't get there. But mostly, if we went to a dance in town, like we would just walk around Oriental Bay and walk home again at night, completely fearless. And one lovely little thing that I might tell you is that the the Maori girls at the hospital there was this lovely young man who would turn up when the um, overseas ships like the Angelina Loro and the Italian cruise ships came into the old overseas terminal and he would come to the hostel and he would take the girls down, they would form a concert party and sing farewell songs or welcome songs. And it was many, many years later when I returned to having travelled overseas, lived and came back and I became a writer, I recognised that that was Witi Ihamaira, who used to work at Head Street Post Office, and he wasn't at that stage a writer or well-known. Wow. You know, reflecting back over the arc of your whole career. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think... think, when I left New Zealand and travelled on my own, I could get work in London easily because I had shorthand typing skills. So that was, I mean, I never regret that. Had I been, had done a professional course, I may not have got, I mean, I attempt all the time and it funded my travelling. Um, so that was amazing. And then I am now a, a writer late in life, but um, I type my novels into my computer. So, um, and, I, and I type really fast and I think fast. and. I find my creative response between the keyboard, my thinking and the keyboards become quite integral. And recently I broke uh, my arm and my husband's like, oh, why don't you do voice activated? I said, no, no, I can't. It's the magic between my thoughts and what happens on the keys. That's where the magic happens. And, And I'm quite a gregarious person, but it's a different thing and I didn't, so, so yeah, the keyboard for me is, is how I unleash what's in my head. So, yeah, I think it's quite a good thing. It was a delight to talk to you, Maggie. Thanks for sharing your memories of the typing pool life in Wellington in the 1960s. Excitingly, Maggie published her first poetry collection, a baby boomer memoir titled For Micah, in March 2022. Online orders through goodbookshop.nz and to find out more about Maggie, go to her website, maggierainysmith.com.
Thanks to all the interviewees in this episode, and in fact, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the 52 women and three men who agreed to record their oral histories for submission to the National Library Archives. Unfortunately, there were one or two recordings that were not able to be included in the podcast due to audio quality issues. Where we can, we will include some narrated excerpts from the transcriptions of those interviews. Coming up in episode 5, the last in the life of the Typing Pool episodes, part 3, will present the stories of where interviewees progress to, either within or once they left the Typing Pool, and spotlight the only Typing Pool that still exists today, that of the medical typists and transcriptionists in hospitals and DHBs. The Keystrokes Per Minute project was made possible by funding support from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the Public Services Commission. Listeners can find out more about the project by visiting website www.storycollective.nz. The soundtrack was kindly provided by permission from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra. Find their music and merchandise on bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>